I want you to find First Kings. Yeah, First Kings tonight. Beginning to look at a new series that I trust is going to help your Bible reading this year. You know, as people go through Genesis, Exodus, so and so forth and so on, and get up into the historical books, once the kingdom divides, the, uh, the southern kingdom has its own king, the northern kingdom will have its own king. Then each one of those will have their own high priest, their own military commander, uh, prophets that prophesy to that kingdom. And you have to keep in mind, you know, sort of running parallel with this after the kingdom divides. And people get all kinds of messed up. They'll say, well, I thought this prophet was talking to Judah. No, he was talking to Israel. Well, I thought this prophet was talking to Israel. No, he was talking to Judah. And I thought this high priest was in Israel. No, he was over Judah. And Hopefully what we're going to do as we go through 1st and 2nd Kings, uh, chapter by chapter, we will see how all of this plays out, and I'll help you understand the different kings, the different prophets, the different priests, the different military commanders, and uh, as you read your Bible through uh, in a given year and you come to these passages, Hopefully, you'll be able to place each one in their respective kingdom. Okay? What I want to do tonight is, first of all, I need some ushers tonight. I need three. Three ushers. First of all, I'm, I'm giving you some notes. I want you to take a moment to read over those notes that will be a summary of tonight. And there's one list of kings, and here's another list of kings. The one Cordell is giving you is from Back to the Bible. The one Charlie is giving you is from Bible Gateway. The Bible Gateway one is kind of hard. The print is, is pretty light, and I couldn't get it any darker than that from the original on the copier. I think the Bible Gateway one is going to probably help you the most. It's a front and back. The one from Back to the Bible is just a front copy. And as we go through this, again, I, I hope it's going to, we'll, we'll go into more detail in coming weeks about the placement of all the personalities. And I, I do hope it will help you read your Bible. You know, as you're reading, for, for instance, just off the top of my head, I'm thinking, let's say you're reading through Amos. You're thinking, I thought Amos was after Isaiah. Well, no, he was a contemporary of Isaiah. They were both during the same time prophesying. And complicating the issue more is that Amos was from the southern kingdom, but he was prophesying to who? The northern kingdom. So again, people get all this jumbled up in their minds when they're reading the Old Testament. And I hope once we go through 1st and 2nd Kings uh, and we get these different personalities in place, you'll be able to then read your Old Testament and keep some of these matters straight. Uh, 
the Bible Gateway one, you'll, you'll see that it, it breaks down uh, the year of the particular king. And if they were a good king or an evil king, a prophet who is prophesying during the reign of that king, and corresponding scripture passages that go with that king. And then you come halfway down through the page where you get to the divided kingdom. And here again, you see the years of the king. If he was a good or a wicked king who a prophet was prophesying to him and his kingdom, scripture references, and uh, so forth and so on. And on the back you'll see how you know, Israel will get to the point where Israel, the northern kingdom, was destroyed. The Assyrians came in and destroyed Israel in 722. Judah, in the left column, they continued on down until 586 when Nebuchadnezzar came in and so began the Babylonian captivity. So again, read, uh, find the notes, the impact of leadership and spiritual life on national affairs. This is something for you to take home tonight afterwards and reflect on more what I'll be going over tonight. Uh, you can keep that handy. I'm not going over this verbatim. I'm going over a lot of this, but I'm, I'm, I won't be going through this verbatim. But I think you'll you have enough in these three pages that you'll be able to understand tonight. Uh, the books of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings were originally meant to be read as one. And the original unity of the four books is reflected in the title which they bear in the Septuagint. What was the Septuagint? The Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Uh, probably done somewhere in the, the third to the second centuries B.C. Because after the Jews came back, once they went into exile and then came back out of exile, uh, Greek, especially after Alexander the Great, uh, Koine Greek, the common Greek, the everyday Greek, was the language of the people. And the Hebrews <clears throat> learned that. that. That became their standard language and so they needed a translation of their Hebrew Old Testament scriptures in language that they were now acquainted with. And so you have the Septuagint. And uh, when you read quotations of the Bible in your New Testament, when the New Testament writers quote the Old Testament, usually what they're quoting is not the Hebrew scriptures. What they're quoting is from the Septuagint. So the, the original unity of the four books is reflected in the title which they have in the Septuagint. They were referred to as the first through the fourth books of kingdoms or 
first through fourth books of reigns. Again, that would be first and second Samuel and first and second Kings. And it was one, one book, a unity. And one theory as to the current division that we have uh, of, of the books is thought that someone, some later editor, separated out the books of the Old Testament into separate scrolls of similar length for the purpose of lectionary readings. When they would go to the synagogue and have scriptural their orders of service, their lectionary. Sometimes some of you came to Baptist, the Baptist church through maybe Episcopal or Lutheran. You had a liturgy, a morning liturgy in your service. And the scripture readings and the even sermon suggestions came out of a common lectionary. Okay? They had that in ancient times as well. And so for the purpose of lectionary readings, just a guess is somebody came out and divided all the books out into individual books for the purpose of easier reading in lectionary readings. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, uh, the books of Kings conclude the section known as the former prophets, going from Joshua through 2 Kings. Now, this division covers from the time of Israel entering the Promised Land until the time of the loss of the land with the destruction of the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom going into exile. Incidentally, too, they commonly read 1st and 2nd Samuel. They would, they would extend 2nd Samuel all the way up through 1st Kings chapter 2. And then after 1 Kings chapter 2 would then begin 1 Kings. So the first two chapters of 1 Kings were oftentimes read along with 1 and 2 Samuel. Now, there's a threefold structure to the books. Part 1, Solomon's accession and reign, his ascension to the throne and his reign in 1 Kings 1 through 11. And then part two would be the two kingdoms, the divided kingdom from 1 Kings 12 through 2 Kings 17. And then part three would be from the fall of Israel with Judah surviving alone being 2 Kings 18 to 25. I want you to remember that the final line of the book of Judges said... In those days there was no king in Israel. Each one did what was right in his own eyes. Remember that statement? Well, this might imply that a monarchy would usher in peace and prosperity. But from 1st and 2nd Kings, we're going to see that this is not the case at all. You know, they wanted a king so they could be like other nations. They failed to realize that God had called them to be different and distinct from the other nations. But they thought, you know, after the chaotic period of the judges, if we just had a king, we'd finally be okay. Peace and prosperity. And again, we're going to see God gave them a king. But they had anything but peace and prosperity. The same chaos followed. And that certainly shows that man's attempts at leadership failed. 
whether it be judges or kings, it doesn't matter. Man's leadership fails. And this sets us up to desire a righteous king who indeed can lead God's people once and for all. Now, the title of these books, 1st and 2nd Kings, should not lead us to believe that all we're going to be looking at is kings alone. They're only one set of figures. Another set of figures we're going to be looking at would be the prophets. Also the priests. Also the military commanders. A very important point, these books are often referred to as the Deuteronomistic history. That's a mouthful, isn't it? And that's because the book of Deuteronomy, the theology in the book of Deuteronomy is to be the backbone of Israel's history. You remember what happened in Deuteronomy? Moses is addressing the people and Moses goes over conditions of the covenant that if they desire to see blessing from God, they will need to obey the terms of the covenant and if they don't, they're going to invite curses upon themselves, which will be God's judgments. And these books are going to show us that sin is a reproach to any people, and righteousness, on the other hand, is what exalts a nation. And so, folks, how leaders lead makes a great deal of difference to a nation. Now, 1 Kings opens up with the failing health of King David. We're going to read about that in a minute. He was around 70 years old. Does this surprise you that he wasn't older than this? As you read about David laying on his deathbed, you, you think of him, you know, is he 90? Is he 100? Is he 110? No, he was somewhere around 70 years old. We've got to remember that was older than many people at that time. And kings and royalty oftentimes lived longer, probably indicative of the fact that their lives were a little bit easier because they had all kinds of luxury and service. Now, you know, it's hard for us to even think of David the way we're going to read about him in a minute on his deathbed. Because we think of him as what? The shepherd boy who slew the giant Goliath. And, and then he's the one who became king instead of Saul. And we also think of David being a mighty warrior, which he was. But we also think of David in other terms, don't we? He's a sinner. Somebody who lusted after Bathsheba and committed adultery with her. But we probably don't think much of David as an old man, but that's precisely how the book of 1 Kings opens. And so it's important to understand 1 Kings is continuing the narrative that began all the way back with 1 Samuel. It's just a continuation of the narrative. Again, you'll recall what happened back then. How they wanted a king, and God warned them that it wasn't always going to go well for them. And Samuel was grieved and went before God in prayer because the people were demanding a king. And remember what God said to Samuel? Give them what they want. Samuel, 
It's not that they are rejecting you. They are rejecting me as being king over them. And so who did they anoint as their, who did they choose and then was anointed as their first king? Saul. Did Saul turn out to be a success story? No, he was a disappointment. Do you remember why they chose Saul? He was tall and good looking. Tall and good looking. And when they saw him, they said, this guy's got to be the one who God's chosen to be ruler over us. And then after Saul, remember when God was going to take the kingdom from him, there was David. He was a good king, a man after God's own heart. But remember how Jesse, when, when God said to Samuel to go to Jesse's household and anoint one of his sons as king, remember Jesse gathered his sons together, but he didn't call in David. Young little David, he left David out in the field. He didn't even consider, his own dad didn't even consider that he would be in the running to be the next king. But again, he was God's choice. And that shows us what? How differently God views leadership from the way we view leadership. We oftentimes look for height. You know, it, it's a given that a man in politics, if a man is the tallest one out of all of the candidates, it, it's said that automatically, right off the bat, he's got a check in the good column. Because height. We look for height, for good looks, and charisma. But God looks at the heart. Then you have David's son Solomon following him. He was a good king for a while, wasn't he? And we're going to see how what a, what a good king he was at the beginning. And he built a temple that David wanted to build, but God wouldn't allow David to build it. Why? Do you remember? David was a man of war and battle and bloodshed. And so Solomon was going to be the one to build the temple. But again, he becomes a real disappointment. And after Solomon, we're going to see that the kingdom divided. Because Rehoboam, Solomon's son, took some really bad advice. Anybody remember what that advice was? You what? Make it tougher. Rehoboam went to the older men and said, you know, the people are saying Solomon, my dad, was real hard on them with taxation and so forth. And, and the older el elders were saying, you know, Rehoboam, listen to the people. Your dad was hard on them. Be a little easier on them. You'll win their favor. Then Rehoboam went to the younger elders and they said, no, stick it to them. Tell them, you think you had it bad under my dad? It's going to be much worse under me. Rehoboam liked that advice better for some reason. So he went and told the people that. Well, Jer Jeroboam led the people in separating away from Solomon and the two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin. And Jeroboam led them up. The, the northern tribes, the northern ten tribes, they separated away. <clears throat> so
So from 1 Kings chapter 12 onward, you had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. You need to realize that from 1 Kings 12 on. When we talk about Israel, we're talking about Israel and Judah. With Israel being the ten northern tribes, sometimes the ten northern tribes would be referred to as Ephraim or Samaria. And then the southern kingdom being referred to as what? Judah. Now the northern kingdom is not going to be the focus through these books. And believe it or not, you don't have any good and godly kings in the northern kingdom. It's hard to believe. But not a one. So the southern kingdom is going to become the focus. And the book of Kings is going to focus on the southern kingdom and trace the line of David. Now, even in the southern kingdom, folks, there were only eight good kings. There's Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joash, or Jehoash, Amaziah, Azariah, or Uzziah, Jotham, Hezekiah, and Josiah. Did I give you all that in the, in the summer? Okay. okay. Now what we're going to see is that the northern kingdom was wiped out by Assyria. We'll see that once we come to 2 Kings. And then the Assyrians, when they wiped out the northern kingdom, they also imported foreigners into the region that had been the northern kingdom. The foreigners intermingled with the Jews there, and what you ended up with was a mix of idolatry and impurity. And, and that's the region, when you come down to the New Testament, that's the region known as what? Samaria. And Samaria was despised by the Jews. In fact, when the Jews were leaving, were leaving Judah and going up to Galilee, Oftentimes, they didn't even want to go through Samaria. And so they would travel eastward. They would cross the Jordan River. They'd be on the east side of the Jordan River, go up, cross back westward over the Jordan River, and land down in Galilee. They would take that roundabout way so they wouldn't have to go through Samaria. They hated the Samaritans. Now we're also going to see how the southern kingdom, again Judah, didn't learn from the lessons of the northern kingdom. God's going to allow the southern kingdom to be carried away into exile in Babylon for 70 years. But then after 70 years, 50,000 of them will come back. Only 50,000 came back, folks. To rebuild the land. And we're going to see the line of David then continuing right up to the time of Jesus Christ. And so you're going to see how God preserved the southern kingdom for a reason. And what was that reason? Because the Messiah was going to come out of that line. But again I want to emphasize. We're going to see the disappointment of man's rule as we go through these chapters. Men rule, but they sin, and they lead the people of God astray. 
And when this happens, the people suffer, and God raises up a new leader. There may be new hopes and new aspirations, but you know what? For the most part, those new leaders are going to fail too. And these books right here, these historical books in the Old Testament are a reminder to us of what happens when we reject God and we choose to put our trust in man instead. When we put our trust in man, we end up in a real mess. And what we're also going to see in these books is the more prosperous they became, the more ungodly they also tended to become. And when this pattern happened, there developed a division between the people. It's a pattern not uncommon in history, and we can even see it down to the current day. When people become more prosperous, they get more complacent, and they put more of their trust in themselves and their own resources, and they forget about God, they, they suffer, and, and division develops between people. So we see it today. They got so far away from God that all God could do was eventually just destroy the northern kingdom and ship the southern kingdom away into exile. So I'm sure by the time we come around to the New Testament, the people were longing for a righteous ruler. Now, let's turn and read chapter 1 of 1 Kings. In chapter 1 it says, Now King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servant said to him, Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms, that my lord the king may be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel, and they found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. That is, he wasn't intimate with her. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking why have you done thus and so? His father being David, of course. He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruah, and with Abiathar, the, the priest, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok, the priest, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan the prophet, and Shemai, and Ray, and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened cattle by the serpent stone, which is beside Enrogel, and he invited all his brothers, the king's son, and all the royal officials of Judah, but he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaiah, or the mighty men, or Solomon, his brother. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David our Lord does not know it? Now therefore come, let me give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in at once to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord the king, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. Why then is Adonijah king? 
Then while you are still speaking with the king, I also will come in after you and confirm your words. So Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber. Now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was attending to the king. Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king, and the king said, What do you desire? She said to him, My lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. And now, behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my lord the king, do not know it. He has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army. But Solomon your servant, he is not invited. And now, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise it will come to pass when my lord the king sleeps with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be counted offenders. While she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in. And they told the king, here's Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, my lord the king, have you said Adonijah shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne? For he's gone down this day and has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle and sheep in abundance and has invited all the king's sons, the commanders of the army and Abiathar the priests. And behold, they're eating and drinking before him and saying, Long live King Adonijah. But me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he's not invited. Has this thing been brought about by my lord the king? And have you not told your servants who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? Then King David answered, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place, even so will I do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed her face to the ground, paid homage to the king, and said, May my lord King David live forever. King David said, Call me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Beniah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon, and let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place, and I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my lord, the king, say so. As the Lord has been with my lord, the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my lord, King David. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished feasting. 
And when Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, What is this uproar in the city mean? While he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the priest, came, and Adonijah said, Come in, for you're a worthy man, and bring good news. Jonathan answered Adonijah, No, for our Lord King David has made Solomon king, and the king has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites, and the Pelahites, and they had him ride on the king's mule. And Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Gihon, and they have gone up from there rejoicing so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise that you have heard. Solomon sits on the royal throne. Moreover, the king's servants came to congratulate our Lord King David, saying, May your God make the name of Solomon more famous than yours and make his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed. And the king also said, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day, my own eyes seeing it. Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose and went each his own way. And Adonijah feared Solomon, so he arose and went to the hold of the horns of the altar. Then it was told Solomon, and behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon, for behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me first that he'll not put his servant to death with the sword. And Solomon said, If he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth, but if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar, and he came and paid homage to King Solomon, and Solomon said to him, Go to your house. Now folks, as we see David on his, on his deathbed, uh, we see him, he's a man, his circulation is suffering because he's cold all the time, and again, confined to bed, and, and I want to point out that there's no hint of immorality going on between him and Abishag. That's pointed out very clearly. This was kind of an ancient version of a heating pad. Now, she was a good-looking heating pad, but she was a heating pad for the king to keep it warm in his old age. And in fact, I think the only reason that she's even mentioned at this point is because she's going to come into play in chapter 2. Now, there's a couple of issues here with Abishai. By her being a Shunammite, that is, she was from Shunam in Galilee, with Galilee being in the north, not far from Nazareth, this may have meant that her selection was a way to maintain a strong tie between the Judahite monarch in the south and the rival ten northern tribes. Now, the kingdom's not divided yet, but there's already division that's forming. There's already some unrest. So by, by a king in the south in Judah, David, uh, having selected a Shunammite to be the woman who ministers to him, it might be sort of like an olive branch to those in the north. Also, though she and David, even though they were not intimate, any interest that anybody had in marrying her would be seen as being what? A challenge to the throne. 
If somebody comes along wanting to marry this woman who's attending to King David, it's going to be viewed as this is a usurper trying to go ahead and claim the throne. And so we're being set up here for David's death. And it's being indicated that there's a transition here about to, to, to happen. And you know, it's interesting how people will act in a crisis. It? And just watch how people will be jock, jockeying for position when there's an evident change in power that's coming up. And that's what we see here. First thing I want you to notice with me is the exploitation of the moment. I've given you that in your outline, the first 10 verses of chapter 1. We meet Adonijah, and he is an opportunist. An opportunist looks at a situation, and what does he say? What can I get out of this for me? How can I come out on top? An opportunist looks at a crisis. He doesn't think, what kind of leader does God want, or what can I do to help the people? But he looks at a crisis as a chance to promote himself. Now, Adonijah was David's oldest living son and was probably about 35 years of age. Remember, David's firstborn son, Amnon, was killed by Absalom. And then his second oldest, Kiliab, or Daniel, must have died young because there's no record of his life. And then Absalom, the third oldest, was slain by Joab. You remember that story? How Absalom was going to try to steal the kingdom away from his father David. David actually fled. And then Absalom's men and David's men were kind of duking it out. And Absalom was, again, best-looking man in the, in the kingdom, we're told. And he had lots and lots of hair. And remember, he rode under a tree and his hair got tangled up in the branches and Joab came along and killed Absalom. Well, perhaps Adonijah now feels like he's next in line for the throne. And he deserves it, he, he's thinking. And by the customs of the day, he would have probably been right. Because customarily, the oldest living son would get most of the estate, and, and he would become the next ruler if his dad had been ruled. And so while Adonijah is certainly taking matters into his own hands, he was probably just making some natural assumptions. Now David has set up a lot of this unrest because he had vowed earlier that Solomon would be the next in line for the throne, but here he is on his deathbed, and David has failed to make this matter clear. He's failed to name a successor. David could have prevented a lot of this division that we read in the early chapters of 1 Kings. But back to Adonijah a moment, he's really a case study in human pride. In verse 5, we see that he exalted himself. And you know the Bible speaks of the danger of that, doesn't it? It's, it's sad how we try to work our plan and advance ourselves instead of leaving our plans to God and letting God make our choices for us. 
From chapter 2, we're going we're gonna to see that Adonijah will readily admit from man's perspective the kingdom appeared to be his. After all, he was the oldest. But he comes to acknowledge what transpired at the end of chapter 1. He acknowledges that Solomon is now the king. The, the king. And that should have been enough to have settled the matter. Right? But here Adonijah is going to be in chapter 2 still turning all this over in his head. He's self-seeking. Adonijah had looks in the family. He had pecking order in the family. And so a lot of people had been ready to follow him. He, he gets these horses, gets chariots, 50 men to run ahead of him there in chapter 1, make the announcement that he's the new king. He divided and conquered. Uh, he conferred with Joab and Abiathar, two of David's men. Joab was David's military leader. Abiathar was David's religious leader. And so Adonijah in chapter 1 definitely thinks he has all the right men now surrounding him. He got the right people on his side and he left the right people out of the loop. Now how about this for ancient politics? <laughs> He's a smooth operator. He knows who to invite to his ascension party and who to leave out. Again, what's commanded here is probably he knows better. If he really believed that the kingdom was his by God's choice. Everybody could have been invited. And everything could have been done out in the open. He offers sacrifice to God. He's thinking, I'm going to try to win God's favor in this too. You know, I'm going to surround myself with some of David's key, key, key men. And I'm going to offer sacrifice to God and ask God's blessing on all of this. Again, it's interesting to see what he goes to, the lengths that he goes to, to advance his own cause. The reality of this, God wasn't in any of it. So again, chapter 1 is preoccupied mainly with Adonijah just trying to move the pieces of the puzzle around and stack as much as he can all in his favor. He's trying to arrange all this, manipulate everybody and everything. And then wants God's blessings on it. Well, I want you to move on from verses 11 and following to see the explanation of the danger. It's interesting how Nathan knows what's going on. Remember Nathan? Earlier when David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, who knew all about it? Nathan did. God had revealed it to him. Nathan knows what all is going on here with Adonijah. Nathan senses the danger right off for Solomon and Bathsheba. Because if Adonijah comes to the throne, probably Bathsheba and Solomon both are going to be put to death. That was common at the time. When rivals were battling for the throne, whoever would come to the throne oftentimes the losers were executed so they could never again be a challenge to power. 
Brothers would even put brothers to death. And Nathan is wise enough to see this is probably what's going to end up happening to Solomon and his mother Bathsheba. And so Nathan's going to force David to do what David has not done publicly. David has failed to name a successor. Now, again, David had promised Bathsheba privately that Solomon would be his successor, but this is something not made public. And David, in the meantime, has evidently indulged young Adonijah and failed to give him correction the way he should have. Verse 6 indicates that David had always just kind of let Adonijah do whatever. Now what Nathan is trying to force David to do is make a public declaration. So he tells Bathsheba what to do, and then Nathan follows by coming in. Now you might think Nathan is being deceptive, but... He's just being shrewd because Nathan knows Adonijah is pulling a fast one. And so Nathan knows if they don't act quickly to undo what Adonijah is doing, everything's going to be lost. Bathsheba and Nathan remind David of two things. First of all, Bathsheba reminds David of his oath to her before the Lord this previous oath. Secondly, they remind David that there are some things he can't avoid any longer. He needs to take action and name a successor. And also, by way of implication, they're hoping David will see how underhanded Adonijah is being and what he's doing. But again, what I want you to see at this point is how Nathan, the man of God, is taking action. Folks, when God's people know that God's will is about to be broken, they need to take action. There's a time for silence in waiting on the Lord, but there's also a time for action. We're not always just called, called to sit back and let happen whatever will happen. If we don't know God's will, we need to sit back and wait. But if we know that something is wrong, we need to step up and take action. Because you know the world's a lot like water, isn't it? What will water do? Water will run down to the lowest possible level. And you just let people do whatever they want to do. And that's what mankind's going to do because of our depraved nature. We're just going to sink to the lowest common denominator. Sometimes God's people need to step up and speak up. Thank God for the Nathans in life. Now, beginning in verse 28, I want you to see execution of the plan. Notice that while David may be physically weak and old, evidently his mind's still sharp because he springs to action. He's a man of his word. He vows to Bathsheba. He's not forgotten his earlier promise to her. And that certainly speaks very well of David. He remembers and honors the vow that he had made years earlier. He's going to keep his vow. And so David tells them to go and put Solomon on his own mule. Now the mule was the animal that a king would ride in a coronation parade. A horse was an animal a king would ride if he was going to war. But a mule was the animal of choice for a coronation parade. That's why David wants Solomon put on his mule. 
Because this is going to be a time for Solomon's coronation. So it's a huge statement that David is making here by, by giving Solomon his mule. And then Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet are going to anoint him and trumpets are going to be blown. This is all going to be out in the open. Nothing hidden about this. Nothing underhanded. This is out in the open. And you see from verse 41, Adonijah and the people with him immediately read into this what has happened. What do they know? What does Adonijah know? He knows it's over for him, right? And the people with him know it's over for him. So they start to scramble. This is like rats scrambling off the sinking ship. I think had they believed with all their hearts they'd been doing God's will all along, they'd probably dug in their heels and fought. But they, they're seeing what's happening now. And, and they're fleeing. Well, I want to end tonight. There's so much more to be said. But end tonight by, by giving you four lessons. Beware of opportunists who use a crisis for self-promotion. Beware of that. Days of crisis call for men and women who desire God's will and God's person to lead. Beware of those who are only interested in promoting themselves. Second lesson, God's ways can be exposed to the light without any shame. Beware of backroom deals. Third lesson, God's people don't need to sit idly by when it's within their power to change something. Again, it's one thing if a situation is completely out of your hands, but Nathan is an example of a man of God who stepped to the plate when he knew he had the chance to be a voice for God and to make a real difference. And then a fourth lesson. Leaving unfinished business of what God wants you to do can create conflict. Again, I'm, I'm pointing the finger at David here. David could have done a lot earlier to prevent all of this. Maybe David was trying to avoid hurting Adonijah. We're not told. But maybe David's just trying to put this off to the last minute. But by failing to name the successor again, he's creating a lot of tension and jealousy and rivalry among his sons. So if you've got unfinished business in your life that you know God wants you to tend to, tend to it. Don't keep putting it off. Okay, I want you to, I want you to go home tonight or this week and just read over carefully a, a summary of these notes, the three pages I gave you. And hopefully that will kind of help with what I've gone over audibly tonight. And look over these charts. And again, I, I really think the chart by Bible Gateway is, is going to be helpful to you in the long run. And I'll have some other charts to give you in this series too. Any comments or questions? Sort of a lot of groundwork to lay in this first lesson tonight. One small question. 
Yes. We don't, scholars don't really know the origins of that, but it was believed that that was a sanctuary you could flee to, grab a hold of the ends, the horns of the altar, and you would not be slain. Uh, it's not the only time in the Old Testament we'll hear of that. And so Adonijah is thinking he can do that and Solomon won't be able to come in there and take his life there at the altar without invoking the wrath of God. So that's what Adonijah is thinking by doing that. Good question. That's a very good question. I don't know. Did y'all hear her? No. Why didn't one of David's wives keep him warm? <laughs> but see, here again, here again we see failure with David and Solomon. Because what did David and Solomon both do? Multiple wives. Multiple wives. Well, his wives were as old as he was, so they were probably cold too. Maybe so. <laughs> <laughs> it's not in here, but they could have had a cabbage shag. <laughs> <laughs> Leave it to Kathy. <laughs> You're right. Maybe so. <laughs> Scott, I think it's interesting that through that first chapter, we see several references to the God of Israel. It's yes. mentioned the God of Israel, the God of Israel. Okay, but in the end of verse 35, it's almost like a foreshadowing because he says, David says, I have a him ruler over Israel and Judah. Yeah. And so it's it's a pre-split reference to the split. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Kind of a foreshadowing, just as you're saying. Maybe worth noting on that first page of the notes there that the LXX reference uh -huh. is the Septuagint. Yeah, LXX is uh, when you when you anytime you see this right here in writings about I don't know if your Sunday school books ever have that in it, do they? Okay, that's a reference to the Septuagint. Again, that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures. Because, you know, from 3 B.C. onward, again, many of the Israelites did not read Hebrew anymore. They'd been away in exile. They had, they'd learned the language that the nations were speaking. Uh, Alexander the Great had even promoted that more. At the end of the exile, only 50,000 came back. The others either stayed in Babylon and went to other places in the world. A lot of them ended up down in Egypt. There was a big pocket in Alexandria. And so they recognized that they needed the Hebrew scriptures in the language that they were now reading. And so legend has it there were 72 scholars and they shortened it to, to 70. Hence the Roman numerals as an abbreviation for the Septuagint. So all the Septuagint is is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures. But again, it's it's 
it's pretty conclusively clear when you read the New Testament and the quotations in the New Testament of the Old Testament, the apostles are quoting from the Septuagint more than they are the Hebrew Scriptures. In, in Paul's writings, tons of quotations from the Septuagint. Was that it? Were you going on to say something else about this? Okay. That's easier to write out than Septuagint. Actually, Kings will be a much easier book if you could pronounce half the name. Oh, I know. And this won't, and this won't be the first time we've run into all these challenging names. Um pretty glad today we have names like Bill and Kathy. 